Hi, welcome everyone who's listening online today. My name is Ed Travers. I'm the teaching pastor at our campus in Westerville. And on behalf of all of our teams, uh, grateful to have you with us. Uh, Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, A little bit about me. So my wife, Tammy, and I have two girls and I grew up uh, with a dad who was a baseball fanatic. So literally baseball was on the tube pretty much all the time. Uh, He's from Boston, so I grew up as a Red Sox fan. And the thing that's kind of nostalgic about baseball is that numbers matter. So when you think about baseball, um, you know, numbers like 300, if you're a hitter, if you can hit 300, you're a really good hitter. If you hit 30 home runs or 100 RBIs, uh, that means you're a really good hitter. If you have, you know, 50 stolen bases, you've hit a a milestone. These are the things. And if you're a pitcher, if you get 20 wins or if you have a sub 300 ERA, these numbers matter uh, in baseball. But there are certain numbers that are milestone numbers, legacy type numbers, to have 3,000 hits. Uh, I remember when Pete Rose uh, broke Ty Cobb's record of of over 4,180 hits, and that that was just a a legacy-leaving number when someone hits 500 home runs. But recently, we had a a Major League Baseball player hit 700 700 home runs, Albert Pujols. This guy... Uh, one of the most incredible athletes of his generation. He's gonna go down as one of the all-time greats. He'll leave a legacy. And because he hit 700 home runs, he's one of only four people to do that. This guy never hit more than 47 home runs in a season and yet was so consistent for so long. But these last several years, he's been getting older and now he's 42, but he's kind of had this resurgence in his his last year and, and broke the record of 700 home runs. That's the kind of thing that, People for generations will look back on and remember Albert Pohlholz for this legacy of 700 home runs. But what's funny is uh, Dustin Yankaski, he's our campus life pastor in Westerville. He told me a stat that he heard that it takes Albert Pohlholz about 26 seconds to round the bases. So if you calculate that up over 700 home runs, that's over five hours he's been trotting the bases in his career. Isn't that interesting? Well, we're in this new series, this brand new series uh, that we're calling, uh, you know, Ordinary People, where we're looking at some kind of unsung heroes of the faith that are are part of scripture, ordinary people. And what we're saying every week is this, is that God uses ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary purposes. And it really plays into one of the core values that we have here at LifePoint the core value of, uh, you know, when it comes to grasp, you know, gospel identity, reaching priority, authentic community, and then spiritual intimacy. And the last one is personal ministry. Personal ministry, the way we define that here is that we are servants. And that's what we're really looking at in this series over the course of the next four weeks uh, and how God uses us to be servants. That's by the very nature of how we define, you know, what it means to have personal ministry, that we are his servants. Now I say that, and I was thinking that for some of us, when we think of legacy when it comes to faith, we usually think of people who kind of made a huge spiritual mark in the world. So think like famous pastors or famous missionaries, those people that we think that's what it means to leave a spiritual legacy. But the truth is all of us leave a spiritual legacy. I've been to enough funerals now uh, to have witnessed the kind of legacy that someone leaves into the next generation when it comes to their faith and frankly, to their lack of faith. We all have a legacy that we leave. The question is, what would be our legacy? 
Do you realize that God is trying to leave a mark through our life to the next generation? And for some, uh, maybe if you are someone who's not really sure about your faith, or maybe this is new to you, maybe you haven't thought about that. But for others, as you know, as you get older, you start to think, what, what will my life mean spiritually for the next generation? So that's what we're gonna look at today. And we're gonna start this series out uh, looking uh, in the book of Nehemiah. And when I think about uh, the fact that we all leave a spiritual uh, a legacy, here's what I wanna say, is it always starts with a burden. It always starts with a burden. Let me give you the context of Nehemiah. Remember the story of Moses and how the people of Israel were down in Egypt and through Moses, God brought them up into the promised land. And then through Joshua and the rest of the judges, they start to solidify themselves as a nation in where we know as current day Israel. That led to the first King Saul. And then under the next King David, the, the country of, uh, you know, this nation of Israel became a real nation that they really solidified as one of the crown jewels of that area, one of the, the most uh, amazing nations that had ever been. Uh, and under the next King Solomon, they built a temple and that was kind of the zenith moment for all of Israel. But God had told them, if you fall away from me, if you worship other gods, I will take my hand of blessing off of you and you will feel, you know, uh, you'll feel what that's like. And eventually that's what happened over the course of, of the, you know, lots of generations, the kings kind of one after another kind of turned away from God. They went into kind of a, a civil war and they broke into two countries, uh, Israel and Judah. And eventually they were both taken into captivity. During the captivity, they were taken up into Babylon around 650 BC to 600 BC. In that time frame, they were in Babylon, but God had promised them that this was only gonna last for a season, but they would eventually go back down to Israel. The Persians took over Babylon and the great King Cyrus allowed the people of Israel to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. But the city was in ruins and now another king, Artaxerxes is in charge. This is around 539 BC, uh, or I'm sorry, that was when Cyrus uh, told the people of Israel they could go back. But now we're talking about another 70 years after that, King Artaxerxes is in charge and that's where we find Nehemiah. And here's what Nehemiah says in chapter one, verse one. It says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped and who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broke down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So here's Nehemiah, and I'm gonna to get to who he is in just a second, but here's this man. He's got family that's actually in Jerusalem. It's in that area of Judah. And they come up to visit him. And he says, what's happened to the people who survived you know, the exile? What's happened to those people in our hometown, the place where our ancestors you know, were raised and, and the, the city of God, Jerusalem, the city that God has chosen to be the pinnacle city of his people. And he hears a terrible story that the city's in shambles, the people are in shame, the walls are all broken down. That means you know, people can kind of come in and raid if they want and, and animals come in and out. It's just in disarray down there. And it says he is weeping and mourning for days, praying before God. And it goes on in chapter one and talks about his prayer. He starts to say to God, God, this, you know, we know that we've sinned against you, know that we have done things against you and we, we understand it. We're asking for forgiveness for, for the sins of the people. 
But for your great name, he talks about your great name, the, the people of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem is in shambles. His concern is for the people, his concern is for the name of God. He has a burden that's overcome him and he's fasting and praying. This is the reality is that you and I need to, we need to discern those things that are in us, the burdens that are in us that actually come from God. Because it's normal to have burdens in life, to, to care about others, to care about your family, to care about things that are happening in the world. But there are times when God puts a burden on your heart and you have to learn to discern that. You know, when I was a young man, uh, I heard the message of the gospel that Jesus loved us, that we had sinned against him, uh, but he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin because he loved us. And it was that sacrifice on the cross that gave us the opportunity to come to him. Now, because he pay, he's paid for sin, he's alive, and then we can come to him and receive his righteousness. I remember as a little kid hearing that message, and that was the time I first raised my hand to God. I said, I want Jesus. I wanna receive Jesus into my heart. That was the first time. But as I was raised, it took some time before I really started to understand my faith and understand who Jesus was. And I was 21 years old, and that's when I discovered the magnitude of the Lord and the King of Kings, Jesus. And, and I just, I fell in love with the Lord. I wanted to serve him with my life. And I naturally had this burden in my soul for people who don't know Jesus. And I've never been able to get over that. I remember I started a Bible study for my friends who didn't know Jesus when I was 21 years old. I just wanted them to know the Lord. And I used to read all kinds of books and study my scripture and, and get into conversations and, and anything that would help me to share the gospel. I just couldn't get over it. And eventually that led to uh, planting a church at Ohio State University. This past week, I had a great reminder, this cool moment uh, where this uh, young girl named Amanda uh, came to visit Tammy and the kids and I uh, on a Tuesday night this past week and, and just had uh, kind of a great little catch up, had dinner together. The reason I bring it up is this. She was the first girl who gave her life to Christ when we planted the church at Ohio State all the way back in 2003. And I'm reminded as, as Amanda was there, now she's talking about what God has done in her life. And she's actually encouraging my daughters, you know, on, on what, what it's like to try to make an impact in high school. And she was talking about how there were people in high school, even though she wasn't interested in God, there were people in high school who kept sharing with her, dragging her to youth groups and church and things like that. And it wasn't until her first year of college that she actually gave her life to Christ. And she was just trying to encourage them. And I was just reminded that all of those years ago, that, that as God put that burden in my soul to, to share the gospel with people, it, people like Amanda gave her life to Christ. I've never been able to get over that. There's burdens in our life that God brings in and we need to discern. And that's how the legacy starts, that God wants to use us and it starts with that burden. The second thing is, is that following God will feel like taking a risk. So here's the reality, as it ends chapter one, you realize that Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes. That means he's in the royal courts. He has a relationship with the king, if you will. Uh, but the way it works is if when you approach the king is that you don't bother the king with anything. But here he is, he is praying and fasting that somehow, some way, God might use him to help the people of Jerusalem. And in chapter two, verse one, it says this, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, but the king said to me, why is your face sad? Seeing you are not sick, this is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. 
Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? And so I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. He's got this burden in his heart that somehow Jerusalem's walls would be rebuilt so the city could be rebuilt, so it would become the city of God again. God chose the people of Israel to show the world who he was. They knew, the people around knew the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people of Israel. And so Jerusalem was the city and that burden in his heart of, he wanted the city to represent God again, to be glorious again. But to go to the king with that request, if you bother the king and the king's having a bad day, I mean, it's off with your head. So when it says, when he said to the king and the king says, hey, why are you sad? He was afraid. So he prayed and then he made his request known. Whenever there's a burden and you feel like God is leading you through that burden, there's gonna feel like there's a risk involved. That's what happened here with Nehemiah. Now, the beautiful part of the story is, you know, God answered his prayer. And it says that the king and the queen were there together and they had, you know, they were moved by this whole situation and they allowed and they granted the request of Nehemiah. They gave him everything he needed and he was now gonna be heading back to Jerusalem, you know, to, to check out the walls. He was gonna be given a kind of a, a, you know, just a guard with him. He's gonna be given the, the rights to get all the materials he needs. God gave his request through Artaxerxes. God moved his heart. But in that moment, he had no idea that's what was gonna happen. There was a huge risk involved. I want you to think about this. This guy had a cushy job. I mean, he works for the king. Everything he needs is provided. He's in the, you know, the house of the king, if you will. He risked all of that in order to be moved by the burden that God had placed on his heart. I think you know, like you can discern the burden from God that when you feel like this burden has come on you, this, this overwhelming feeling that, that you, know, you have this concern for the things of God. You know it's from God when you're moved to do something that's outside of your comfort zone. I mean, isn't that true? Like it's something as simple as just giving, right? And when we, when we give to the Lord, we feel like, man, this is what we're supposed to do. But that natural tendency is to protect ourselves financially. We don't want, if I give this away, what if I don't have enough? There are other times when maybe you felt like this and I've felt like this, that you, know, you feel like I wanna share the gospel with that person, but what if they reject me? What if I don't say it right? Have you ever felt that? You feel this burden and you wanna say something, but it goes against your comfort zone. And I think that happens across the board. Whenever it feels like God is moving us, there's a risk involved. And I would say this, the difference between knowing about God and knowing God is the moment we actually follow him in that risk because he meets us there. And our faith grows in those moments when we finally say yes to God. We give him an opportunity to, to act on our behalf. Isn't that what happened with Nehemiah? And the same thing happens in our life that when, when we sense that God is moving us and we, we respond and follow him in that risk, God meets us in those moments and that's where our faith takes off. That, let me tell you a quick story. Um, you know, as a dad, I'm always trying to figure out how to like, you know, how do I pour into my kids and throw gas on the things of God in their life, right? When, when, when they start to sense God moving in their life, I wanna throw gasoline on that. And so it will just, it'll turn into a blaze of faith. 
But there are other times in their life I'm trying to like guide them and throw water on stuff. And I'm always trying to discern, God, what are you doing so I can help guide my kids and disciple my kids? Well, a couple of weeks ago, my wife came to me and says, hey, uh, you need to have a conversation with your youngest, Carly. I said, about what? She goes, well, something's going on in her classroom. Let me explain. Carly is a very, uh, you know, just quiet kid. Uh, she is kind of socially awkward, I think is what she would say. Uh, to give you an example, uh, you know, she's a great singer. She loves to sing in front of hundreds of people, no problem. But if she had to go up and talk to one stranger one-on-one, -on -one, I mean, she just, you know, like her, she panics. We were in Grader's uh, ice cream place, uh, you know, over the summer. I said, all right, Carly, you're gonna order tonight. And she's like, okay, okay. I said, you can do it. She's like, okay. I said, let's practice. And she practiced, I need a scoop of vanilla in a cup, please. I'm like, okay, let's go up. And we go up to the front. We go into the store. She's ready to go. The person comes over and says, can I help you? And I look over at Carly and Carly looks up and goes, I, I, I. <laughs> the person looked at me. I started to laugh. I said, she would like a scoop of vanilla in a cup, please. And he goes over to get it. I look at Carly. I'm like, what happened? She goes, ah. my hands are sweating, dad. <laughs> That's my kid. She just panics sometimes when it comes to interaction with people. You know, great kid, quiet kid, shy, socially awkward. That's how she would describe herself. In her class this year, in her literature class, uh, they have decided in her public school to do away with some of the classics like The Scarlet Letter, and they've introduced some new books. Books, uh, this particular book uh, that she has to read is a book that um, I am not real happy about. Uh, it's kind of a revisionist history and uh, has kind of this flair to it that's trying to look at history through a different lens and kind of an opinion piece, and it's really not great literature at all, uh, but they have to read it. And I'm actually happy that she's reading it for one reason, to see a different view, but I'm not appreciating the view. Uh, in the book, it talks about how, you know, that, that God, kind of the prevailing thought at the time of the 1800s was that God had cursed black people, and because they were cursed, God did not love them, and then, you know, Christians didn't have to love them, and that's how, why they were able to do slavery without any conscience whatsoever. Now, understand, that is not from God at all. That is absolutely untrue, but some people talked like that back in the day to kind of solidify that it was okay to have slaves. Uh, so I agreed with that part, that was terrible. But it also talked about how God was a very angry God. And so the teacher got up and taught the, the room and said that the God of the Old Testament was this really angry God with all the plagues and everything, that's angry God. But there's a different God of the New Testament who's more of a fatherly figure. And Carly said, when she started teaching that, I felt sick in my stomach. I said, what do you mean? She goes, I was hurting. I was hurting for the people listening. I was hurting for the teacher. She goes, but I didn't do anything, dad. I didn't wanna make a scene, which is totally what I expect of Carly, right? She's not gonna speak out like that, right? But afterwards, she said she went to the teacher. She went up right to the teacher and said, you know, said, you know ma'am, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same God. And the teacher looked at her like, are they? And she says, in fact, I was reading this morning in John 1, 1. It says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. But then it says the word became flesh and made us dwelling among men. That is Jesus. He's talking about Jesus. So a lot of people just put Jesus in for the word, word. So in the beginning was Jesus and Jesus was with God and Jesus, and, she, and Carly said, and dad, when I said it, she was mouthing it along. It occurred to her, it, it was clicking, Jesus was God. And she says, don't you understand that the plan all along was that God would send his son to redeem mankind from sin because of his great love for people. 
And, she goes, and the God of the Old Testament, you need to understand it's the same. God was angry against Egypt because he had enslaved the people of Israel and he was trying to free his people from slavery. And she said, and daddy, the teacher looked me in the eye and said, Carly, I was wrong. And Carly said, yes. I was shocked, just shocked. I could not believe that was my kid. You have to understand, she can't order ice cream, but she was willing to go to her teacher and explain the truth to her. And I was just thinking, okay, I gotta pour gas on this somehow. I said, Carly, how did it make you feel? And she talked about that feeling inside. I said, Carly, let me explain the difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Knowing about God is you can become intellectually, you know, filled up in knowing the information about God from scripture and from church, but knowing God is the Holy Spirit in you trying to move your life. That feeling you had, the hurting for the people, that's the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit hurts for these people that need to know the truth. That's how you discern the Holy Spirit. And when you responded, Carly, when you responded, that's how God leads our life. That's how you actually know God, not just here, but in here by following the Holy Spirit's lead in your life. I bring that up because that's what God is trying to do in us. If we're gonna leave a legacy of faith, we have to sense the burden he's put in us, sense the Holy Spirit's leading and actually take the risk to follow him. It goes against the grain of our nature and yet that's exactly how he moves our life. And here's the thing, God does amazing thing through very ordinary people. That is his MO, if you will. He's constantly working and doing amazing things through ordinary people. Here's what happens. You know, there's some uh, opposition to Nehemiah and this whole kind of clash happens around, you know, Jerusalem. But Nehemiah goes and he talks to all the people and he casts the vision, he has the materials and they get to work right away. And chapter three is a very difficult chapter for someone to preach because all it is is a list of names and different gates and different areas of the wall that they built. And it starts to list person after person after person and what they did. It starts out in verse one. It says, then uh, Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priest, and they built the sheep gate. There's like nine different gates that they built, over two and a half miles of wall. And this is a very large wall. In fact, there's still pieces of the wall that you can see today. There's um, you know, pieces of this huge wall. It was as high as 40 feet and as thick as eight feet. This wasn't a little tiny fence they were building. This was a wall around Jerusalem. And person after person, as it's listed out, the legacy of these people are listed in scripture for simply building a part of the wall. They all work together. In verse eight, I like this one. It says, next to them was Uziel, the son of Hariah, goldsmiths. They repaired a section of the wall. They were goldsmiths. So they weren't necessarily wall builders. They were goldsmiths by trade, but they figured out how to help build the wall. I like that. And next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired and restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. So here's a person who, this probably is totally out of their comfort zone. They're a perfumer. They know how to make you know, these perfumes and sell them and make them in trade. That's what they do, but they're building the wall. And then skip down to verse 12. I like this one, I wanted to share it with you. This is, this is part of the legacy of this man. Next to him was Shalom, the son of Holahesh, the ruler of half the district of Jerusalem. So here's a guy who's a ruler. He's kind of like a, a little area ruler in Jerusalem. He repaired the wall, he and his daughters. I love that. He's, he's got his family helping him, his daughters helping him making the wall. 
And one after another, after another, after another, it talks about these families, their legacy. Part of the legacy of what God did through their life is they built a wall. And let me tell you something. If you skip over to chapter six, here's what it says, verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. The opposition was so strong at some points, they were literally had a sword in one hand and a hammer in another, building the gates and setting them and putting the rocks in place. And when they were done in 52 days, they now had a city again. And if you fast forward in history, you realize that Israel was this major city. And during the time of of Greece, you know, they still had the temple and, you know, Alexander came into the city and noticed the temple of God. Rome, the city was there, and that's the city where Jesus was born. Well, Bethlehem, and then came into Jerusalem, the city where he, he died on the cross. This is an amazing work of God. He did something extraordinary through an ordinary guy like Nehemiah, a cupbearer, and through all these ordinary people that are listed in chapter three. Here's what I would say to us, is that sometimes we recognize that there's something big happening. We recognize that, and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we think, well, I need to, to use my gifting and work for, you know, in the kingdom and serve God using my gifting, but maybe there's not an outlet. And other times there are other things that come up that we think, oh, well, that's not my gifting. I'm not going to do that. Here's what I would say. I, I read this this week that God will use your gifting to grow the church. The way that you're personally gifted, he will use you no matter where you're at. Because of your gifting, he will use it to really help the church and help the kingdom of God spread. But there are times when you just have to do the thing that you're not even gifted at. Why? Because God will use that to grow you. God will use all these things together to to move apart his purposes, his extraordinary purposes. He will use all of us ordinary people, sometimes in our gifting and sometimes not, just to be part of what he's doing. Can I tell you something? I talked about my trajectory, you know, in my 20s, I was just growing and learning and and, uh, trying to share the gospel with people. Eventually that led to a church plant. Uh, And in my years of church planting down at Ohio State University, uh, I became friends with Dean Folks. Uh, He became kind of a mentor to me while I was at OSU. Uh, And I first was asked to speak and give kind of a testimony to what was happening at OSU. And at the time, uh, there were like 500 people in all of LifePoint. So there were, they had one campus up in Delaware where there was this older church building they met at on Sunday mornings and they met at another church building on Sunday nights. And between the two services, there were like 500 people coming to LifePoint. I later on, as God was moving me out of collegiate ministry into more of a family from a cradle to grave ministry, uh, became part of of LifePoint. And they were just getting ready to, to launch a new campus in Delaware. And since my time coming, now there are five campuses, five gospel communities that people are being reached on behalf of the gospel. And it's, it's incredible. There's typically over 3,500 people coming to LifePoint on any given Sunday. That's not even the big Sundays. Why do I tell you this? Because God is doing something extraordinary in our midst. But do you know what it's made up of? Ordinary people serving on life teams on a Sunday, people serving back in littles and juniors and crew middle school students and high school students, leaders helping them grow in their faith, 1825, life group leaders all over our church, people serving in the sound and the visuals and and connecting cables and in our worship teams. It's people out in the parking lot greeting, all of the teams setting up resources. It's made up of ordinary people. And that's how God is moving this church. And this is not normal. I'm telling you, I've been in ministry for over 20 years. It's not normal to see church plants turn into this. And yet, 
God is creating gospel centers. We're multiplying gospel centers all over Central Ohio. Not just Lewis Center, but Plain City and Delaware and Westerville and now Marion. It's incredible to watch. Extraordinary. God is writing a legacy through the ordinary people like you and I just sometimes serving in our little ways, inviting people to church, inviting them into our homes and sharing the gospel with them. So I realize we're at the beginning of this series and we're gonna talk a lot about what it looks like for us to really be servants. But do you know what it means to leave a legacy? It comes down to a decision that you and I make is that will we be servants? I wanna bring up one legacy that appears in chapter three of Nehemiah. In verse five, it says this, and next to them, the, the Kohites, they repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. That was their legacy. The nobles of the Tekoites, they would not stoop to serve the Lord. I think the decision for you and I, if we really wanna leave a legacy of faith, that means God does something in us in such a way that it starts to spill out on other people. They notice, but there's also a possibility that we could be the people who our legacy is that we wouldn't serve the Lord. The decision for us is to say, Lord, I wanna be your servant. Lord, use my life. Use me any which way you can. That's the decision in which God enters in, gives you the burden, calls you out of, out of your comfort zone to actually serve him. And then he starts to do something in your faith and through your life. Wherever you're at, I just wanna challenge you with that. That for some, that means, hey, it's time to start serving. For some, it means you need to, to recognize that burden. You need to take a risk. Some means you need to invite someone or talk to them about faith. There's all kinds of ways but it's gonna come down to that decision. For some of you, you are serving. And this is just a way to remind you that God is trying to work in and through your life. He's doing something extraordinary around you, even though you might be just seeing your little part, right? Your little part of the wall and God is building this beautiful thing. But for others, maybe you've never made that decision to become a servant. You know, it's easy to do. We, we get caught up in our own lives, caught up in you know, our experience, caught up in, in how the word's impacting us, how the, the gospel impacts us. And sometimes we never make that jump to say, okay, what does God wanna do and how am I gonna be involved? And it's easy sometimes for us in that situation, I've had seasons in my life where I kind of just became kind of self-focused and, and rather than being a servant. And you know, you can look around the church and say, well, they need to do this and they should be doing this and they should be doing this. And, and we wanna tell people and send a, an email or, or you know, so that, Someone needs to do something about it without realizing that God's trying to burden us and to use our life. And still maybe there's others here that as you're listening in, you're thinking I've never made the decision to follow Christ. That I, I've always heard about God, I've always known about God, but I've never made a decision to actually surrender my life to him. And for you today, maybe that's your decision is to simply surrender your life to Jesus. So I'm just gonna ask everyone who's listening to, to kind of close your eyes and talk to God. Wherever you're at, talk to him. Maybe he's put something on your heart. Maybe there's a burden and you need to talk to God about that right now. But I'm gonna ask that if you're a follower of Christ to say, God, I surrender my life to you to serve you. God, please use my life for your greater purposes. I surrender as your servant, God. Help me to have the courage to take steps even when it feels outside of my comfort zone. Just surrender to him. And if you're listening in and you've never received 
Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you say to God, God, I believe in you. I believe that you sent your son Jesus to die on a cross and I believe he rose from the grave. Maybe you've always believed that, but tell God, God, I believe that. I believe in you, God. I believe in what you've done. But then say today, Jesus, I'm calling on you to forgive me of my sin. I am sorry and I'm asking your forgiveness for my sins. And then say, Jesus, will you lead my life and help me to learn to follow you as best I can? Just tell him that. You need to know that step of faith is what makes you right with God. Not because of something you've done, but because of something Jesus has done and you receive that gift into your life today through faith. God, I pray that you would use us for your greater purposes, that the legacy that you write through our life would be your, your purpose in us. Help us to simply surrender as your servant to your ordinary people, God, do extraordinary things. And we ask all this in your son's name, amen.